This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... You would like to see an African continent that is not exploited, an African continent that is thriving, that its leaders are doing their their utmost to improve the lives of their people. That's Father Paul Samsumo, head of the Vatican News Service, on the Pope's wish for Africa on his current tour. Details coming up. Also, the leaders of Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia meet in Mogadishu to discuss the ongoing fight against Al-Shabaab militants. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Chad will open an embassy in Israel today. And Equatorial Guinea names its first female prime minister. We have these stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Pope Francis today heard victims of conflicts in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo recount harrowing killings and rapes. At the Vatican's embassy in the capital, Kinshasa, victim after victim told their story to the pontiff before laying down objects symbolizing their suffering, such as machetes or daggers. The Pope appealed to those who orchestrate conflict in the Eastern DRC to stop The Eastern DRC has long been racked by conflict with more than 100 militant groups operating in the region. Francis is one of the first full on his first full day of his visit and earlier celebrated mass in front of a million people. Per te che in questo paese ti dici cristiano ma commenti commetti violenze. In his sermon the Pope says God tells Christians to lay down their arms and embrace mercy. Francis says Christians should not be afraid to take the crucifix between their hands and give Jesus a chance to heal their hearts. And he says it is a beautiful thing for people to open their hearts and homes to peace. He encourages his audience to write the words, Peace by with you, on their homes, saying displaying those words will be a prophetic statement to their country. Shortly after his arrival in Kinshasa yesterday, Pope Francis plunged into his agenda denouncing the centuries-long exploitation of Africa by colonial powers, today's multinational extraction industries, and the neighboring countries interfering in DRC's affairs that has led to a surge in fighting in the East. The Pope says the poison of greed has smeared Congo's diamonds with blood and that economically more advanced countries often close their eyes to that. Francis says this country and this continent deserve to be respected and listened to. They deserve to find space and receive attention. To applause, he says, hands off the Democratic Republic of the Congo, hands off Africa. While in the DRC, he will meet with government officials, members of the church, and survivors of violence. However, the Pope, who has health issues that limit his ability to walk, will not visit the violence-wracked East. On Friday, he travels to South Sudan. Reporter Jafar al-Kitanti is in Goma 
the largest city in the east, where he spoke with people about the Pope's visit. Itene Katimbi tells Jafar the Pope's visit is a diplomatic trip and has nothing to do with the problems people experience in the DRC. The Pope never jamais prononcé d'une façon. Etienne says the Pope has never spoken in a real way that solves problem situations. He says in Goma they have suffered for a long time and now the M23 rebels are near the city and the Pope does not do anything. He says the Pope should tell the truth about what is happening and should denounce Rwanda, which he accuses is backing the rebels, and he is critical that the Pope is not coming to Goma. Rwanda has many times denied accusations that it backs the M23 rebels and has accused the DRC government of sheltering a rebel group that opposes the Kigali government. Regina Mariette says she was not able to go to Kinshasa to to be there to say thanks to the Pope for his visit. She goes on to say the Pope carries all the worries of Congo, of Africa, of all the world. She says it weighs on him and she says his visit is a grace to the country and she knows it will be a blessing. Pope Francis aims to bring a message of peace to two countries in Africa that are riddled with poverty and conflict. As you just heard, he now is in the DRC and will head to South Sudan on Friday. Father Paul Samosumo is the head of the Vatican's News English Service as well as vice president of the World Catholic Association for Communication and Media Professionals. In talking to me, he says that the Pope intends to shine a spotlight on the DRC and rekindle international attention on South Sudan, which he holds dear to his heart. First of all, I think this is a fulfillment of a visit that Pope Francis has wanted to make for a long time. In fact, last year in July, he was to have made this trip, but uh, due to health reasons, he had to postpone. And uh, in lieu of that visit, he organized a mass here in the Vatican with the Congolese community in Rome. And uh, he told them, he assured them that he intended to make the visit, and it was important to, to him. And during that mass, there was a religious nun who spoke about the situation there, particularly in the eastern region of um, Congo, that area of Bukabu, Goma, where there are all these militants that have been creating a lot of pain and suffering for for the people there for many, many years. And uh, he has been concerned about that, Pope Francis, about the killings and also the fact that um, he is against the exploitation of Africa and the colonial kind of mentality that was there during the colonial era. So he is also going there, I think, not just to denounce the violence, but also as a pastor who is going to console the people. The second leg of Francis's trip will bring him to South Sudan, the world's youngest country, where continued fighting has hampered implementation of a 2018 peace deal to end the civil war. In fact, I think Pope Francis, this second leg of his visit to South Sudan, he holds it dear to his heart. With the 2013 war, civil war that started in South Sudan, you know, after their independence in 2011, only three years, they found they found themselves in a crisis. It is actually like a continuation when Pope Francis invited 
all these leaders, I think that was in 2018, uh, if, if my memory serves me correct, April 2018 or March, he invited the, the warring leaders in South Sudan to the Vatican. And uh, he had kind of a prayerful session with them, a retreat uh, with them in, Kampa, in, in, in the presence of the South Sudanese Council of Churches, which encompasses not only Catholics, but also other leaders, other Christian uh, leaders of the, the Pentecostals, the Evangelicals, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, and so forth. So they were there, and they spent a few days in the Vatican praying together, and uh, he was really trying to encourage them to work together for once and kind of stop the war. I, I spoke with one of the bishops of Tom Brayambio recently, Bishop Hiboro Kusala, and he was speaking to me about how complex it is to implement, and now they've had to extend it. It is a complex society as well, but I was struck by one thing that uh, this bishop said to me, that um, much as it is a civil war, it was more really some individuals perhaps in a power struggle, and uh, everybody brings in their tribe as a result. And um, it is an ethnic conflict, but at the same time, perhaps more of a power struggle among certain individuals uh, in the political scene there. And uh, this has been protracted. And now we have all these vice presidents that are trying to work together with the help of the international community. And I think the church is trying to do its bit. And finally, Father, this trip the Pope is taking to Africa now is the fifth to the African continent in his 10 years of pontification as Francis seeks to make his mark on reshaping the church. Most interesting, as you have said, Pope Francis, he has gone to he has not gone to the big Catholic countries. Perhaps Congo will be the first time that he's doing. But if you look at his previous visits, they have been to the Central African Republic, places that are troubled. What I would say myself is that uh, he goes to the periphery where the church is bandaging those who are wounded, those who are suffering. He would like to see an African continent that is not exploited, an African continent that is thriving, that his leaders are doing their, their utmost to improve the lives of their people. He, migration has also been one of the hallmarks that he has been dealing with, and there are a lot of young people leaving Africa, coming to Europe in search for, some of them are running from conflicts, like what has been happening in South Sudan. Some of them are running from just, there is nothing back home. So they're trying to make a living, and Pope Francis, I think, would like to encourage better life for many Africans, not just Catholics, but um, Africans in general. Father Paul Samsubo is the head of the Vatican News English Service as well as vice president of the World Catholic Association for Communication and Media Professionals. He spoke with me from Rome. The leaders of Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia met today in the uh, Somali capital, Mogadishu, to discuss the ongoing fight against al-Shabaab militants. The security summit comes amid an ongoing offensive by Somalia and its allies against the Islamist militants. Somalia in the past year has won significant victories against the group, which has also increased its counterattacks. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. At least four motor shells landed near the presidential palace in Mogadishu Wednesday, ahead of a meeting of heads of states and governments from the region. There were no casualties reported in the attack, for which Al-Shabaab claimed the responsibility. 
The Frontline State Summit went ahead with Kenyan President William Ruto, Djibouti's President Omar Gele, Prime Minister Abi Ahmed of Ethiopia, and the host Somali President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud. Earlier, Somalia's Information Minister Dawood Awais told journalists in Mogadishu the leaders would discuss efforts by the Somali army and its clan militia allies to ensure peace in the region. He said the discussions here in Mogadishu will focus more on the operations of the Somali National Army in cooperation with the citizens with the aim of achieving lasting peace in the Horn of Africa and ensuring the state of security in Somalia does not only end in Somalia, but also extends to the neighboring countries. Kenya, Djibouti and Ethiopia contribute troops to the African Union transitional mission in Somalia, known as ATMIS. However, security analysts say today's gathering explores more enhanced engagement among Somalia's neighbors. A communique from the meeting noted that the regional countries had agreed to mobilize resources to support the ongoing military operations in Somalia. Matt Bryden is the founder of Sahan Research, a security and policy research group focusing on the Horn of Africa. The meeting of the frontline states in, in Mogadishu today, the heads of state, is really an essential step in advancing the fight against al-Shabaab, independently of wider peace and security issues such as the role of ATMIS um, and security cooperation, economic cooperation between these neighboring states. Bryden says the engagement among the regional states is long overdue, noting the regional bloc IGAD has previously called on member states to deal with al-Shabaab as a regional problem. Bryden says although al-Shabaab is centered in Somalia, it has carried out deadly attacks throughout the region especially Kenya, and has made incursions in Ethiopia and Djibouti. So this is about uh, Somalia and its neighbors not simply cooperating on the conventional counterinsurgency uh, battle against al-Shabaab inside Somalia. It is about uh, investigating, um, identifying, and disrupting al-Shabaab's networks of financiers, facilitators, and active supporters across the entire region. Following the conclusion of the summit, the leaders of the four countries said they had agreed to establish a joint coordination mechanism and jointly plan a decisive operational strategy against the Islamist militantists. The UN Security Council has set December 2024 as the exit date for African Union forces from Somalia. However, that milestone has been termed overly ambitious in the light of inadequate preparation among Somali security forces and the current strength of a Shabab. Ahmed Mohamed, for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. The Tunisian Independent High Authority for Election says about 11.3% of eligible voters took part in Sunday's runoff vote for a new parliament. The once-powerful parliament has been stripped of many of its powers under changes enacted by President Kais Saeed. It will have little to say on executive decisions and can no longer impeach presidents. Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Middle East program, discussed the aftermath of the elections with VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi. I think, first of all, the turnout level is not very surprising. We saw similar numbers during the first round of elections back in December, 
And additionally, similar to the first elections, nearly all of the opposition parties and civil society groups had chosen to boycott this round. So we really didn't expect to see that many people show up. But additionally, as you mentioned, this new parliament really is mostly for show and have, will have very little ability to influence politics. So many Tunisians just didn't feel the need to participate in this process at all. Najib Shabi, head of the National Salvation Front, Tunisia's main opposition coalition, which includes the Islamist-inspired Anahda Party, urged a united front against President Qaysaid and said, I call on political groups and civil society to join hands to work for change in the form of Qaysaid's departure and early presidential elections. How feasible is that? Well, Chebi's group has been making similar calls for months. And I really don't think that this is feasible right now for two main reasons. First of all, I just don't envision any scenario where Saeed chooses to step down voluntarily. And second, the opposition so far has been really unable to form a united front. They remain largely divided, particularly over the role that Anahda should play. And so while the National Salvation Front has amassed many followers and continues to have large protests with growing numbers, there are still many in the opposition who refuse to join forces with the Nahda and won't sit at the same table with them. And that's really preventing the sort of large united opposition that would be required to force Saeed to step down. Following a similar low turnout in December's first round vote, experts said Sunday's poor participation was another blow to Saeed who has stripped the legislature of its powers and granted himself far-reaching authority since his dramatic 2021 power grab in the birthplace of the Arab Spring uprisings. Do you agree with this assessment? I do agree that this low turnout does not look good for Saeed. I think it shows that his support is quite low. You know, if he can't even get people to show up to go to the polls to vote, that doesn't speak very well for how much people are willing to support him or go out there for him. But I think this also reflects this broader disillusionment and frustration with Tunisian politics. The economic situation is really just spiraling out of control. And I think many Tunisians are far, far too preoccupied with putting food on the table to worry about politics today. External pressure on President Qais Saeed failed to change his power grab approach, which derailed Tunisian transition to democracy. What's the way out in Tunisia? Unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for that. I think, you know, the external pressure really has not been effective. But any way forward at this point, I mean, really has to come from the Tunisian people. And I think until and unless the Tunisian opposition can overcome its differences and chart its own path forward, Said is not going to change his behavior. And even if they do come up with some sort of perfect plan, with some sort of national dialogue that creates a beautiful roadmap out of the situation, there's no guarantee Saeed's going to listen. So I think Tunisians are in for a difficult road ahead in the next several months. That was Sarah Yerkes, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Middle East Program, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi. The French news agency AFP says Equatorial Guinea has named its first female prime minister. Manuel Rocaboti, who was named by President Teodoro Obiang Nguema, has been the Minister for National Education, University Education and Sports since 2020. She was also the Vice Dean of the Faculty of Letters and Social Sciences, Sciences at the National University of Equatorial Guinea. Boti replaces Francisco Pascual Obama, who was prime minister for nearly eight years. Authorities say her appointment proves the government's commitment to gender equality. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. 
too late and a recipe for disaster in itself. Just two reactions from opposition parties and civil society in South Africa to the government's impending declaration of a state of disaster around the country's electricity crisis. Decades of corruption and mismanagement at state energy regulator ESCOM have led to a near collapse of the coal-driven power grid and the country is now regularly left without electricity for more than 12 hours a day. Its economy is crumbling, unemployment is rising, and people are dying in what analysts have called the greatest threat to the nation since apartheid. Darren Taylor explains. A state of disaster would permit ESCOM and the government to bypass procurement procedures. In theory, This would allow the utility to buy the equipment and skills it needs to repair power infrastructure much faster. Normal tender and contract procedures would be circumvented, allowing ESCOM to procure services and products from wherever it wants with little oversight. Without the red tape, says Energy Minister Gwede Mantashe, load shedding, as the blackouts are known, would be over within six months. I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I hear that. The president's own plan, which he tabled, which is a so-called emergency plan, has us experiencing load shedding way into the post-2024 environment. John Stiernazen leads South Africa's biggest opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. He says Mantashe's farcical statements are further evidence that the ruling African National Congress cannot be trusted to fix a catastrophe that it is blamed for causing. If it could be fixed in six months, well, what's happened the last 15 years? Get the politicians out of the way. People like Gwede Mantash are an obstacle to us being able to really get out of this crisis. Countries the world over have contracted in international energy experts, the private sector, and have just let them get on with getting electricity into the grid. Get a group of people around the table, international energy experts, free their hands up, cut all the red tape and regulation, and let them move as swiftly as possible to getting us out of this mess. But, says Inkata Freedom Party leader Velenkosi Khlabisa, the ANC wants to control everything, especially anything that involves money and lack of regulatory oversight. The political parties, especially those who are sitting on the opposition bench, have a good experience of the ANC. When they declare a national state of disaster on ESCOM and electricity, we will see the likes of the COVID-19, the massive looting of the state resources. Several court cases are pending against top ANC members, including the former health minister, who allegedly stole millions of rands meant for COVID-19 relief. The government insists it'll ensure full transparency and accountability of all funds related to energy. It's also indicated it and it alone will manage the state of disaster and processes to speed up electricity generation. Klabisa says the ANC's arrogance will only make the crisis worse. Speaking with one voice, with one message, is what South Africa needs. But unfortunately, you're not going to get it from the ANC because they don't know what they are doing. The ANC is a disintegrated political party, 
at a party level as well as at a government level. And the ANC, whatever promise can do now, is going to be an empty promise and a false hope just to keep people believing something is going to happen while we are approaching the elections. People of South Africa... Most polls have the ANC falling below 50% after elections penned in for early next year. In that case, it would have to form a coalition with smaller parties to hold on to government. Surveys indicate the ANC's inability to provide reliable electricity 30 years into its rule is a major reason for its dwindling support. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, John Walker, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.